I am the new number two. Get number one. As far as you're concerned, I'm in charge. What can I do for you? Come. What we do here has to be done. It's the law of survival. It's either them or us. To imprison people, steal their minds, destroy them. Depends on whose side you're on, isn't it? I'm on our side. But we have to find out where your sympathies lie. You know where they lie. Welcome to Prisoner Worth Watching, where we're looking at this groundbreaking 50-year-old show about spies, paranoia, and politics that's more relevant now than ever. This is the second part of our coverage of the episode Arrival. If you haven't heard the first part, go listen to that now. For everyone else, now on to the rest of the story. So back in the apartment, a uh, cart pulls up, and it's the electrics guy. He's got a tan jumpsuit type thing. He's bald-headed, no glasses, and this is worth remembering for just a few moments that he's in this jumpsuit and so on. He starts working on the speaker, starts repairing it, and number six says, I think I'm going to go for a walk. Outside, he passes by a guy riding a bike, and he's decided, number six has decided to try and get into the spirit of the thing, at least temporarily, and he, he says to the guy on the bike, lovely day. The bike guy says, showers later? passes on by. Interestingly, the bike guy already has his umbrella up. <laughs> now, you could argue that this is for shade since it's currently sunny, but I'm tempted to think that he just has this umbrella up waiting for the rain to start. Who knows? <laughs> but then number six passes a gardener, and the gardener is wearing a tan jumpsuit, and he's got this bald shaved head and i'm not sure if it's the same actor or not i suspect it is at any rate it's very much like the electrics guy who is back at yeah. the apartment it is the same actor and i think the implication or again they're just throwing something out here like are these guys cloning people you don't know what it means that mm -hmm. he's got the exact same person he encounters as who came into his apartment right Number six, he goes up to the crest of a hill. And this is an interesting little decor choice because it's lined with columns with Roman-style busts on them. And it's very similar to a scene in Westworld, the 1973 <laughs> movie, not the new HBO <laughs> series. MGM presents Westworld. Your attention, please. We will soon be landing at Westworld, the ultimate resort. We have you on grid five, over. It consists of three worlds of the past. Locking in now. Worlds where you can live out your every fantasy. There's Roman world, the lusty, decadent delights of Imperial Pompeii. Notify ground crews. Medieval world, chivalry and combat in 13th century Europe. And Westworld. Lawless violence on the American frontier of the 1880s. Each resort is maintained by reliable computer technology. Westworld in the movie had, uh, well, it was, it was a resort called Delos, and one of the worlds was Roman world. And at one point, Richard Benjamin, it's been years since I saw this, so <laughs> forgive me if I get the details wrong, but Richard Benjamin is fleeing Westworld, and he gets to Roman world, and he goes through this long line of statues that are very, very similar 
to this. So similar in my recollection that I wonder if that scene in the movie may have been somewhat inspired by this scene here. Could be. Now, I got to give you my Westworld story. So when I was a kid, that was a hugely influential and scary movie to me. Mm. And I mean, remember the Roman world part, (laughs) but Ah. the thing that really got me was Yul Brynner, right? So Yul Brynner is a robot in there who I think is hunting down Richard Benjamin. Yeah. There's a point in the movie where they take off Yul Brynner's face. Right. Yeah. And you see the robotics underneath and it was very scary. And then I watched it later, a couple decades ago or something. And, you know, we're talking now DVDs and everything. So you're seeing it at high def. <laughs> mm-hmm. When Yule Brenner, he's been disabled or, or shot or something, and he's laying on a table and they're going to fix him. He has around his face, the outline of the plate that they're going to take off. That is his mm, face. Right. And then when you watch it in modern television, where you can see everything, all they did was take a Sharpie and draw a line oh. around his face. Ah. And when I saw that, it completely deflated all of my feelings about what <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, note to self, never watch Westworld in that definition. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, be yep. darned. Yeah, that was, I. if I remember right, my parents actually took me to see that in the drive-in. And I would have been three or four years old at the time. So if you're wondering why I turned out the way I did, that's uh, (laughs) probably a contributing factor. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he's at the crest of this hill and there's a road below and a cart passes by and a balloon sentry rolls past a rover. And I presume there are many of these, or maybe there is just one who gets around, but it seems based on this episode that there must be a few of them. And as number six passes by the statues, they turn to watch him and some of their eyes even flash, which uh, usually is not a selling point for a hidden camera. But uh, (laughs) again, this could be one of those things where they're just taunting him. And we cut to the bald guy with glasses who's in the war room and he's monitoring it all. And he calls a yellow alert because number six is getting close to freedom or at least the boundaries of freedom. And we hear cop sirens approaching. They have an extra sporty cart. It doesn't look anything like a cop car, but it it doesn't have a canopy on it. And it's got some little wood panels on the side that are just uh, very appealing. So the cops are coming. Number six. Being a recently retired secret agent doesn't really have much trouble with the cops. It takes very little effort on his part to commandeer the cart, which, when that happens, raises the alert level to orange. So things seem to be going pretty well for him. Now he's got his own cart. He's reached a beach, but then the balloon shows up. Rover (laughs) shows up. In pretty short order, it gives him the blob treatment. It covers his face, and he screams through it and all that. But he's not dead. Another cart shows up, and it takes him to the hospital. There's a whole lot of scenes, and I think later in the series as well, that take place on the beach where he's running along, or or in this case, in the cart. The thing about that beach is that the tide would come up and cover the whole thing. So they would have a couple of hours a day where they could film on the beach and then they had to Mm. get off before all the water came in. So whenever you see the beach and you think they had like two hours and they're filming as fast as they can. I think in some of this, you'll notice that 
half of it is his stand-in and half of it is him. And you know, they're doing a lot of tricks to try and film this as quickly as, as they can. You know. Okay, very good. Mentioning that tide, well, I, I have a note later on when we get a view of the graveyard that is probably relevant to that, but we'll, we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he wakes up in a hospital. It's mostly a reasonably modern-looking facility, but next to his bed, there's a lady, probably late middle age, I'd guess. She's sitting in an old wooden rocking chair, and she's knitting. And I gotta say, this is an image out of a horror film. I mean, she's <laughs> very grandmotherly, but in a kind of sinister way. <laughs> How are you feeling, son? You've had a nasty experience. Where am I? You're in the hospital, son. Well, now, mustn't exert yourself. I'll just tell the doctor that you're awake. Yeah, yeah. She could be deliberately projecting that air of grandmotherliness. When he wakes up, she goes to inform the doctor. And while he's more or less alone in the room, he sees laying in another one of the beds. He sees someone he knows. He addresses him as Cobb. Cobb is sleeping, but he wakes him up. And Cobb, unfortunately, can't seem to remember a whole lot that's useful. When Six asks him how long he's been here, he says, three, four weeks, months. <laughs> so it could be three weeks to several months. Who knows? <laughs> but he just doesn't remember. And, and the more questions that number six asks, Cobb just has no useful answers to any of them. And for once, he may have an excuse being disoriented, but who knows? We'll, we'll get yeah, to that and later. <laughs> I did not recognize the actor at this point while he's laying down, but later on in the episode I did. This is Paul Eddington, and he is a star of one of my favorite shows, British shows, called Yes Minister. And later they did another show called Yes Prime Minister. Yeah. And this is a brilliant show about politics in the UK in the 70s. And this is how Nigel Hawthorne became famous. Huh. He was a part of that series. What is the ultimate purpose of government, if it isn't for doing good? Minister, government isn't about good and evil. It's only about order or chaos. And it's in order for Italian terrorists to get British bombs. And you don't care. It's not my job to care. That's what politicians are for. My job is to carry out government policy. Even if you think it's wrong? Well, almost all government policy is wrong. But <laughs> frightfully well carried out. So normally when we bring up one of these things, I say, oh, we should cover this at some point. The problem is that Yes Minister is so good <laughs> that it's not applicable to our podcast because, you know, <laughs> our, our purpose is to tell you whether to watch it or not. And you would mm. just say, well, yes, watch it. Watch the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> So I recommend you watch it. We will probably never cover it, but it is a brilliant, brilliant series. Yep. Okay. So Cobb is utterly useless as far as information goes. The doctor arrives and Six tells him that he's ready to leave. But the doctor insists that he really, it's for his own good that he should get a little examination, make sure everything's okay. So as they're walking down to the examination room they pass a door with a window in it number six looks through it and it's an interesting little scene it's a long room it's all lit in magenta light and there's 10 people in there all blindfolded and in straight jackets 
and they're sitting along the walls, five on the left wall, five on the right wall. They're sitting down in their straight jackets and blindfolds. Not a lot of sensory stimulation in there for them. And then as they progress further toward the examination room, they pass a guy in the hall. He's got a shaved head, and it's just sort of dotted or scattered, speckled with what looked like little mini post-it notes. They're kind of curling up at the bottom. Now, post-its didn't exist at the time. It also looks kind of like the classic guy who nicks himself shaving and then (laughs) wads up some toilet paper to patch it up. Both the group therapy, the magenta room, and this post-it guy, to me, they have the feeling of little one-offs to make things seem more surreal, you know, as we had, like, the butler of number two's place, mm-hmm. who was a little person. It, mm-hmm. There there are a lot of things thrown in throughout this episode that it seems like they might have just been thrown in to make things seem off kilter. Mm-hmm. But since this is the only episode I've seen, I can't say for sure that they don't end up being utterly crucial in later episodes. Like that bike, for example, that ends up being on all their pins, and it's an important theme. Actually, it's even in the closing credits in turn. Right, out. right. I think you have a good sense here. They're trying to give you a sense of all the different things that could happen to you and the lengths that the people who run this place are willing to go. And we do occasionally see follow-ups on that, but not as intensively as this, because, you know, they're trying to lay the groundwork here, yeah. Yeah. Well, they finally get to the examination room. The doctor examines number six. And meanwhile, we cut away to number two, who's sitting in his spherical chair. And he's on one of those cordless phones we saw earlier. He's talking to someone who may be number one, because number two is talking as though it's the higher up that he's Mm -hmm. talking to. Uh, Just updating him on the situation with number six. Back in the exam room, the doctor pushes some Greek-lettered keys on a little device. It looks like a stenographer's device, but they all have Greek letters. After a moment, a different machine gives him a punch card, which the doctor analyzes and says, everything's in order, you're absolutely fit. This kind of reminds me of the medical exam in Idiocracy, where there's not really a lot of hands-on, you just... Stick a probe in your mouth and another where the sun don't shine. Oh, is someone not feeling well? Your illness is very important to us. Next. Welcome to the Helpmaster Inferno. Powered uh, by Technology. This goes in your mouth. This one goes in your ear. And this one goes in your butt. Shit, hang on a second. This one... Oh. Uh, this one, this one goes in your mouth. And you get a result from the machine eventually. Well, number two is talking to number one or whoever on the screen behind him, you see this examination occurring. So they have cameras everywhere. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Good point. The doctor reveals that number six's old clothes were burnt because... (laughs) They were in bad shape or for whatever reason. They didn't look that bad. I I think it's kind of like, we're going to destroy your previous life. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to give you these wacky hemmed lapels uh, on your blazer (laughs) and all that. (laughs) Doctor takes him back to his ward. And this is one of the more entertaining oddball things in the show. On the way back, 
there's another door that he can look through the window and he can hear sounds coming out of it. There's a guy in there talking gibberish. And not only does he sound like Homer Simpson speaking gibberish. He's coming along nicely. He looks like Homer Simpson. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, this is the guy we passed in the hallway previously who had the post-it note things on him. Oh, is he? Oh, okay. I didn't, didn't recognize him. All right. So we get a little, uh, get a little follow-up to that story. Mm -hmm. Good deal. But he's in there standing at a podium and there's a little ping pong ball in front of him. It's, it's sticking up from the floor on a rigid wire. It's like, if you picture it antenna on a costume alien costume you know the <laughs> little fake antennas with the balls on top it's that kind of thing but it's not swaying it's just very still and he's staring at it spouting his gibberish and it looks very very happy so that's <laughs> he's very energetic happy yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah the doctor says oh he's coming along nicely <laughs> and at that point an alarm bell rings And it's from the ward where number six has been staying. A nurse tells the doctor that it's the amnesia case, Cobb. So apparently Cobb was an amnesia case, which could be one reason why he didn't answer a lot of the questions. But we'll we'll find more about (laughs) Cobb later on. And furthermore, the nurse says Cobb has jumped out of the window and he's dead. Mm -hmm. uh, Poor old Cobb. We'll see later on, number six thought of Cobb as a friend, or at least that's what he tells someone a little later. We'll get to that. He leaves the hospital. As he leaves, a worker hands out some goodies for him. He's got an employment card, an identity card, health and welfare card, and a credit card. He also gives him a free ride home on the taxi, <laughs> so he won't have to use any of those credit units. Two credits, right? That's what it costs you. <laughs> yeah, I think so. It's a lot of ID cards to establish that he's number six, but uh, <laughs> oh, you got to follow the rules, I guess. So they give him, to replace his old outfit, they give him a blazer, which the it's, it's a dark blazer, but the lapels have these white hems on it. They're kind of, mm. uh, it's hard to describe, but it's outlining the lapels kind of. And they give him the bicycle pin. I believe you said that was it has his yeah, that would have his number it. on it, yeah. And also he gets a straw boater, which is the old straw hats like you might see barbershop singers <laughs> wearing. And I hadn't mentioned it, I don't think, but you see a lot of people wearing these straw boaters in town, especially in the marching band. He's pretty quick to discard both the pin and the hat. <laughs> but he keeps the blazer. Yeah. So I think one of the points here is to make this a timeless show, they're not wearing sixties apparel. They're Mm -hmm. doing something very different. And I think the whole point is like, you don't know when this takes place. It could take place any time. Yeah. And they have a combination between the straw hats and other things of things that might be old and things that are new. Yeah. So a funny thing, watching the commentary by a couple of the production people on this story (laughs) they were just annoyed as crap and they bring it up over and over again that throughout this first episode he's wearing a different suit until this point than he wears the rest of the series you know once he has the blazer with the white outline and everything Mm -hmm. and the reason that annoyed them was they had to film all these things with him walking upstairs and walking through different areas of the village 
that they couldn't reuse later because the way this was filmed is you would film three or four shows at a time. Mm -hmm. And so for the production people, they're not thinking of it as a continuous story. They're just thinking of it in terms of shots. And it's like, we need right. a shot of him walking up this set of stairs. Well, we can't use the one from the first episode because it wasn't the blazer. <laughs> and so we have to reshoot him walking upstairs so that we have a shot of him in the blazer, which we can then reuse another thing. So it was just interesting <laughs> to me how much that annoyed them that literally 40, 50 years later, they're complaining about all the shots they lost because they had the wrong suit on <laughs> for show. <laughs> yeah. I'll be darned. It seems like filming a guy walking up steps wouldn't be that onerous, but... <laughs> I'm not in the business. And so for them, this is all a big puzzle, right? They've done all this shooting and all these different episodes, and then you just have to put it together. And they might use a shot that was intended for something else, or they might reuse a shot for something else. They're just trying to get the story down, you know? Yeah. And they have a whole bunch of footage, and it doesn't matter to them when or what it was shot for. They're just trying to make it all work. Yeah. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now that he has his pin and hat, safely discarded <laughs> I, I i wouldn't be surprised if they try to foist some more on him later but well, uh, <laughs> at least for this episode he's gotten rid of him he goes back to number two's tower with the green dome on it and it turns out there's a new number two in town yep i guess uh the previous number two presumably the fact that number six got as far as he did in his escape displeased the people running the show at any rate, new, new number two is here. Number six, having seen what he saw in the hospital, he's more down on this place than ever. Mm. He says, you imprison people, steal their minds, destroy them. Number two says, depends whose side you're on, doesn't it? <laughs> Which to me isn't exactly a good answer, because if you're messing <laughs> up somebody's mind, <laughs> I mean, giving somebody lobotomies or whatever, it's uh yeah, does doesn't really have much to do with what side you're. <laughs> oh well. Until this point, apparently, number six didn't realize that he was just number six to these people because he seems surprised when he's addressed that way. He says, "I'm not a number. I'm a person." <laughs> number two says, six of one, half dozen of the other." <laughs> yeah, I think it's a great line and kind of counters his thing about I'm an individual and we don't know why he chose why Patrick McGoon chose the number he did. I think six sounds pretty good, but also because he could do the quote like this, it's good. I think <laughs> up until here, he kind of thought like it was his address or his phone number or something. He didn't seem to understand mm -hmm. that. No, this was him, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so finally number six leaves without getting any satisfaction is seems to be the trend for him, but number two speaks into his cordless phone again. He says, subject proving exceptionally difficult, but in view of his importance, no extreme measures to be used yet. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the things that they have to establish for the show is why don't they just torture him? Yeah. And they want to make it clear what the things in his head are so valuable that they don't want to take any risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if they push him too far, he could always presumably just slit his wrists or something. Yeah, or they could end up killing him if they were torturing him or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Number six goes back to his apartment. 
and a marching band passes by, and it's playing another march. <laughs> but this time it's a funeral procession, followed by a crying woman in a red fedora. She's, mm. she's keeping her distance. She's not part of the main procession. Number six follows her to a beach overlook where they, they can look down on the beach and see the procession. And the graveyard that number two, the first number two, had mentioned earlier, this is apparently that graveyard, and it's right on a beach. And to me, it, it doesn't look like it's built to last. <laughs> and you had mentioned that this beach regularly flooded with the tide. So that... <laughs> yeah, the village has an actual graveyard, but it wasn't oh. visually appropriate. So they did this, and yeah, they just put some headstones up <laughs> in between the tides here. <laughs> so... and. No matter what, it's a beach. I mean, you can't bury people on a beach. It's all sand, right? <laughs> unless you're <laughs> yeah. waiting for the bodies to just go out to see you. <laughs> so I would say this is not the most logical part of the show. <laughs> yeah. Well, though, then again, that could be another little stratagem on the part of the proprietors, you know, that they're going to let everybody know that their remains are going to be impermanent. And, yeah. Good point. Go it, back it, it to fits nature. In. That's true. Yep. <laughs> He goes up to the crying woman. Number six goes up to her and tells her he was a he was a friend of Cobb, who is the subject of the funeral procession. Of course, she's evasive at first, but eventually she opens up to him, and they arrange to meet at noon at an outdoor concert. At the concert, the music that's playing is marches. <laughs> There's not a huge turnout for it, but there's a few people present. The lady in the red hat and number six are speaking. Uh, and they're looking at a book together, and they're smiling as they talk. This is for the benefit of the cameras. <laughs> now, it isn't clear if the cameras have lip readers watching them. I would presume they would, but it's a good effort anyway. <laughs> Cobb and the lady in the red hat plan to escape. But they, in quotes, they came for him too soon. The lady and Cobb knew that they were coming for him eventually. They just didn't know when, and they came too soon. So she asks number six, can you fly a helicopter? He says, I might, which isn't is an odd answer. It's yeah, I think it's kind yes of a or yes no. or no. Yeah, I mean, I know whether I can fly a helicopter or not. <laughs> yeah. She tells him it's guarded electronically, mm -hmm. and we'll see soon enough what that means. He'll need an electropass to get past <laughs> the security, and she has one. And she says they'll meet by the stone boat at two. So they started off at the funeral. They met in the concert at noon, and then they meet it by the stone boat at two. I guess it's just to give us some variety of scenery as their conversation evolves or something. Although, <laughs> in this case, she does need to go fetch the Electropass from its secret hiding place, so it makes sense. Right. The deal is, we spend a very small amount of time with this woman in an episode that has a whole lot of stuff going on. So by having three different scenes that they're in, it just makes it seem like they've developed this relationship, even though they've literally known each other for hours or at the absolute most a day or two, depending, you know, depending on how you yeah. interpret it. That makes sense. I think that is actually a strategy of pickup artists, which <laughs> I am not because I'm 
Heed everybody. You are here for me to enlighten you, to edify you, to send you off into the now not so unknown future. So come along with me. How to fake like you are nice and caring. But I think that's sort of something they do is when they've got somebody in their sights, they take her to multiple places in hmm. short order to create that illusion of long acquaintance. Oh, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> I did want to make a production note here, and I don't want to ruin watching this for anyone, but having seen it as many times as I have, and then watching all the background material and documentaries and everything, this scene of them at the concert is a classic thing about how the show was put together, which is basically they don't want to do anything outdoors that they don't have to. It's really tough and expensive and time consuming. So, what they do in a scene like this where they're sitting at this concert is they shoot a few shots of them together, as few as they can. And then a week or two later, they recreate in a set this environment and all of the close-ups and all of the dialogue usually is shot in the set. Hmm. And so it, once you know that and you watch these, and in particular, we'll see as we go along, there's a classic thing I first noticed in Star Trek, and <laughs> we've referenced that multiple times already, mm -hmm. which is you'll have the shot upward of the camera toward the person's face and a blue screen behind them. So it used to be Kirk mm -hmm. and here would be the prisoner. And what's happening there is, and I used to be naive. I thought that this was a different shot, but still shot outside. But no, I, I learned in watching the documentaries for this, what they're doing there is that's in a studio and they just put a blue thing behind them and then shoot upwards so that you're not seeing any vegetation or any of the stuff around there so that they can mm. do these shots in a studio without having to do it on location. Okay. So it's supposed to look like a clear sky. Yeah. And one uh. of the things that really, once you know, this is a bit problematic for all the amazing production they did in this episode in this show is they will be in a completely grayed out cloudy time on the island. <laughs> and then you get these shots with a perfect blue sky behind him. <laughs> it's like, wait, what's going on here? <laughs> so, yeah. I, I think they should have at least considered doing a cloudy sky behind him in the set. <laughs> yeah. And I think he would now. I mean, this is the kind of thing that wouldn't happen now so much. But at that time, it was a little more acceptable. You didn't have to make everything match up. Very good. The next scene, after they've parted and agreed to meet at the stone boat later, the next scene is in number two's office. Number two is talking to someone on the phone again, presumably number one. He hangs up and he turns to his guest, who is the lady in the red hat. But she doesn't look happy to be there. Number two says, pity about Cobb. Still, it wasn't your fault. Never mind, there's no blood on your record. <laughs> Number two gives her a new assignment. That's a folder that she opens up to reveal a full-size picture of number six. Yeah. Might be the same picture we saw getting redacted earlier in the episode. <laughs> number two says to the lady in the red hat, we'll be watching your progress with great interest. <laughs> and the two things I want to mention about this, one is that in The Phantom Menace, Senator Palpatine says almost the exact same thing to Anakin Skywalker at the very end of the show. And you, young Skywalker, we will watch your career with great interest. <laughs> uh, but he says career instead of progress. But other than that, it's pr pretty much identical. 
The second thing I wanted to mention is I went to look up Palpatine's quote and make sure that I remembered it correctly. My previous search had been for penny farthing, and I accidentally <laughs> left that in the search box. And I ended up getting a page called Pop Apostle, which I haven't looked at the site extensively. I can't completely vouch for it, but the page I found was about this episode. And it had all kinds of neat facts about the episode, including <laughs> Palpatine's quote and the connection to this show. <laughs> so I haven't read that page or that site. I expect I'll visit it sooner or later. So I figured I'd mention that because it's pretty cool what they have on that page. <laughs> I'll have to look that up. I'm also going to say when the government prosecutes you, they're going to find your search history to be very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> so now we go to nearby the stone boat. He's sitting on the balcony that overlooks the stone boat. Number six is passing time by playing chess with the Admiral, who we saw earlier the old folks on. His heart isn't in it, though. The number six's heart isn't in it. He keeps watching out for the lady in the red hat. As the helicopter arrives, so does the lady in the red hat. The admiral checkmates him. Number six excuses himself to go on and meet the lady. The admiral says, try the boat. She's great in any weather. <laughs> yeah, and I think he says here that he sailed her in any weather, which since yeah. it's a stone boat, that seems a little bit <laughs> unlikely. To me, the implication is, like Six, I think this guy resisted, and mm. they ended up doing something to him that made him, you know, a bit loopy. I mean, he's clearly not mm. all there. That That's what I take from this, yeah. Because yeah. most yeah. of the people Six meets, they're happy, they're intelligent, they're on top of it. You don't get any sense that they've lost anything, but this guy, mm. it's different. Yeah, yeah, and he'll, he'll make a little remark a little later that is kind of dark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's a good point. I had just interpreted it as being either the onset of senility or maybe just uh, a little joke. You know, <laughs> didn't land like it could have. <laughs> a lot of options there, a lot of interpretations. The lady in the red hat, when number six catches up with her, she gives him a watch, which is the electropass. Number six points out that he saw her leaving number two's place. She mentions that before she was assigned to number six, she was assigned to Cobb, but she insists that she hasn't betrayed either of them, and six tells her she's coming with him. She says she won't. She never intended to leave without Cobb. So she's going to stay here and take her chances, I guess. So they part, and number six walks by a lot of bikini-clad beauties. They're playing not in the sea, but in a little pond with a fountain in it near the sea. It's a nice little scene, although it could be zoomed in more. It's <laughs> nice. Yeah, and I think, and, and this is actually commented on by the production people in the documentary, this was kind of a mistake because these girls are just in bikinis. There's no number, there's no none of the color coordination with everyone else. It doesn't fit into anything else. And honestly, I feel like it kind of shocks you out because it so much doesn't fit. You're like, what's going on here with girls in bikinis running around? And we never see anything like this in the series again. So I think it's just a case where they hadn't quite completely finalized the look and feel of the show. 
So that's why it's in the first episode and you'd never see it again. Because once they understood, yeah, everything needs to fit into this aesthetic, that's the approach they would take. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, the bikinis don't really, they don't have like the red and brown and blue and all the other, all the clashing colors that you might expect. But then again, not everybody in the village does either, no, at least not in this episode. Mm. So, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see how things unfold. <laughs> Number six finally gets to the helicopter and it's guarded by a balloon, by a rover, and the watch is beeping. So when the red hat lady had said it's electronically guarded, I'm not sure if she meant that the helicopter was just locked or if she meant that the balloon itself, the rover, is some kind of electronic security system. It's not clear which is which, but at any rate, the rover is here, but he has the watch, and that's apparently enough to make it keep its distance because he gets into the copter and takes off. And he gets high enough that he can see quite a distance. And I don't think this is supposed to be an island. I think it's supposed to be coastline, but I I could be wrong. It could be a portion of a much bigger island. Yeah, it's an open question. I mean, I think the assumption is an island would obviously make it harder to escape from. But the reality is that Port Marion is part of a coastline and not an island. So, yeah, yeah, you know, one of those unanswered questions. Right. Okay. But at any rate. If he recognizes the landscape that he's in, he gives no indication of it. You know, a secret agent would probably recognize a lot of different landscapes, but he doesn't doesn't give any indication that this this is one he's familiar with. Number two, meanwhile, is watching on the big screen, and he smirks. (laughs) He's he's very pleased with himself, and he motions to his lackey to take over the remote control of the helicopter. Meanwhile, the red hat lady has sat down near the admiral, and he invites her to play chess. She was just kind of looking out over the water, thinking her own thoughts and so forth. But he invites her, and she says, I don't play. The admiral says, you should learn. We're all pawns, my dear. Your move. Yeah, and when he says we're all pawns, she gets this look on her face. Mm-hmm. And it's clear she realizes she's been had. There's no way to know, but it seems like she really was trying to help number six. And as soon as he says we're all pawns, she knows that she didn't actually help him. Yeah, I think that's a very reasonable interpretation. <laughs> so then the camera goes to the war room. Number two is still directing the movements of the helicopter through his minions. He looks like he's having a good time. He's got a big smile. The filmmakers pull a little fast one. The helicopter sound effects get higher and higher pitched. It sounds like it's going to crash or something terrible is going on. But finally, it just sets down gently. So they took control of it and brought it back to the village. Yeah, it just sits back down. I think it may be on the same lawn. Yeah, mm-hmm. actually, it is the same lawn because we'll see in a moment that Rover is still there. Mm-hmm. But we cut back to the war room, and Cobb is alive. And he's talking with number two. Number two says, I think I'll let him keep the watch, Cobb, just to remind him escape is not possible. Mm-hmm. Cobb says, don't be too hard on the girl. So she... Doesn't know that he's alive, but he's at least somewhat concerned for her welfare, even though he didn't or couldn't let her know that he was actually okay. 
Number two says, don't worry, she'll be well taken care of. And Cobb says, yes, that's what I was afraid of. <laughs> and I think something interesting here is the, this indicates the levels of deception, right? So mm-hmm. the woman, the lady with the red hat, was essentially an agent of theirs, both to theoretically go after Cobb, and apparently she never knew that he was a double agent because she did her job, and then to go after number mm-hmm. six. But she was, in fact, trying to help them. But then it turns out Cobb was actually fooling her all along, right? So there's just so (laughs) many layers of deception here, which is what this is all about, right? You never know what's real. You never know who you can trust. Yeah. And Cobb says he mustn't keep his new masters waiting. He's, Mm -hmm. He's going to be leaving the village, apparently. And it's implied, I think, by new masters. I think it's implied, well, first we know that number six knew him previously in mm-hmm. his career as a secret agent. Right. So presumably um, he was a British agent. Yeah. And then it seems as though whoever runs the village has managed to turn Cobb mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. to their own purposes. Yeah. And I think that's very interesting because, so at the end of this episode, we're seeing someone who theoretically went through the experiences that number six did got turned and is now going on to another life with some other government. And all he had to do was give up the lady in the red hat. (laughs) Another interesting thing here is that number two says to him, I believe, you know, be seeing you. And Cobb says, Alf Wiedersehen. And that's the only time in the series we hear that. It does imply that a foreign entity has now taken control of him. And maybe that's who runs the village. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, could be. Doesn't prove anything, but it's certainly uh, something to speculate about. Mm. Who knows? Maybe this is tied into the boys from Brazil or something like that. (laughs) We cannot tell you who the boys from Brazil are, only that they are not science fiction. 30 years the world has forgotten, and you persist and persist. Well, not at guards now, madam. You're a prisoner. Could be a vast interconnected universe behind the scenes of various shows that all fit into the prisoner. (laughs) That's almost the end, but we get one more little scene. Back on the lawn where the helicopter has landed, number six emerges from the copter and he walks away from it and Rover, the great big balloon, follows along peacefully enough behind him. And that brings up the closing credits. Yep. This is his life. <laughs> From a production standpoint, a funny little thing there. The way they did that was they still had a string going from his the back of his jacket to Rover, so that as he oh. walked along, he was pulling Rover <laughs> along with him. So I just find that kind of amusing. Yeah, worked well enough. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and the production people, when they're talking about Rover, they keep saying, oh, in this shot, you can see the string, and you can see the string here. I can never see the string, even when they're pointing it out. I, th- I think they did a really mm. good good job of that. It was a helium-filled balloon oh, okay. that they were then just pulling along. Okay, let's get to our conclusions. So I want to start this to be respectful of Mr. McGowan. <laughs> mm. He has a quote in which, being asked about the prisoner, he said, If whatever we wanted to say is not already contained within the episodes of the series, then I failed in the production of them, and any amount of chit-chat now will not make good that omission. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Basically, he spent his life mostly not talking about the prisoner. Hmm. So now, let's proceed to our chit-chat about what it was Patrick McGowan was trying to say. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, first, I should say, the fact that he says whatever we wanted to say reminds me of a story of an old Hollywood executive. It's attributed to Jack Warner or Samuel Goldwyn, various people, but the executive told somebody once, if you want to send a message, call Western Union. (laughs) (laughs) But in this case, I think I like the message in this show, at least in this first episode, I, I like it, so I'm going to allow it. Okay. As someone brand new to all this, what did you think? I really liked it. I thought it was tremendously entertaining. In terms of information density, it's almost an anti-Doctor Who. I I sent you a text earlier today. I think I said something to the effect of this one episode is basically like four Doctor Who episodes. Yep, yep. And uh, and that's not a slam on Doctor Who. It's just a a show with a different pacing. I enjoy Doctor Who. Well, if this show, as we said, if the network had gotten their way, and if this had been 24 episodes a year, they would have had to do the same thing as Doctor Who, right? They would have had to Mm, pat it out and and do all that. Sure. And I'll say early on, when you had just started watching it, you, again, sent me a note saying you just watched the first 10 minutes and that you were loving it. And that made me really happy because what I enjoy is sharing things that I like with my friends. And then, mm-hmm. and so knowing that you were enjoying it and that that meant, you know, the next couple of months while we watch the rest of this should be interesting. I really liked. Yeah. And yeah, I just think it's an amazing show and it's an amazing first episode. As I say, watching it as many times as I have now, I can see a little bit more behind the scenes. I can see the strings being pulled, but that doesn't change just how incredibly creative this was and how there are very, very few shows that have this amount of creativity and energy and relevance, you know, and again, Mm -hmm. 50 years later, absolutely everything in this show is only more relevant than it was when it came out. Oh, yeah. One concern that I have, which it's not a huge concern, it's not going to leave me awake at night or anything like that, but another show that takes place in a place that's more or less cut off from civilization, there was a show called Lost, and I've never seen it, I've never even seen an episode (laughs) of it, but I've heard that a lot of people really grew to love it and spent probably millions of man hours trying to figure out what the different (laughs) mysteries were in it. And supposedly the show ended up leaving a whole lot of its ongoing mysteries Mm. not really addressed or solved or anything. And I'm I'm wondering to what extent there's got to be some stuff that won't get explained. I mean, then you, you can't just have a, rubric and go down step by step explaining every little tiny thing that (laughs) happened in every episode but i'm wondering to what extent things are going to remain unexplained and i'm not asking you to give me any spoilers i'm just saying that's my current apprehension about the the show my lips are sealed (laughs) but what i'll say with any of these kind of shows that have sort of a big concept you know a high concept to them is it's always wise to enjoy the journey (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, oh sure that's true we'll see what happens when we get to the end yeah yeah (laughs) okay anything else you want to 
talk about it. Well, you know, we didn't officially Ooh. say, I think it's obvious, but let me say, mm. is this worth watching for a moderate audience? Yes, I would say without reservation. Mm. I would I would recommend this to damn near anybody, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely meets my definition for if you haven't seen it, I'm going to drag you to my couch (laughs) and show it to you. Yep. Okay. So let's talk about what comes next. As we've discussed, there is no definitive order for the episodes other than the first and last. Everything in between is up for grabs. So now that we've watched the first, we reach our first decision point about what comes next. And I have what I believe is a unique, but entirely correct perspective on what should be the next episode. And that is the general. So join us next week to see what the general is all about. And we'll be seeing you. Adios. Game of chess, my dear. I don't play. You should learn. We're all pawns, my dear. So both the doctor and the prisoner have themes that are amazing and not coincidentally, those themes were both done by Ron Granier, but they did a lot of work on the prisoner to figure out what the theme would be. And they actually worked with three different composers and Hmm. I thought it would be interesting to see what it might've been and get your response to some of the other possible themes for the prisoner. Hmm. So the first, uh, was a guy named Robert Farnan. And this is what he thought would be a good idea. Hmm. You kind of reminds me of the theme of the Magnificent Seven. Yeah, well, uh, it's a very Western theme. <laughs> yeah. So we're t- so here's what I think the problem here is, right? The prisoner is a futuristic, very intelligent, very looking toward the future show, and he's like, "Why don't we do a Western theme?" <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think that quite fit. <laughs> yeah. Okay, next up, we have a guy named Wilford Josephs, and here's what he came up with. What do you think? Hmm. (laughs) It's definitely got a a lot of... uh emotion in it but it's i prefer a little more melodic theme myself i I like to something to be more hummable yeah i don't don't think that's really hummable (laughs) yeah my feeling is unlike the first one this is certainly more in the ballpark right it's it's Mm -hmm. you could see it 
Um, it's not totally inappropriate, but obviously not, not what we came up with. Now, even Ron Grenier's first version was something a little different. So let me uh, play this for you, see what you think. That's interesting. I, uh, you know, it it almost fits with the sort of pseudo medieval typeface that they use everywhere, <laughs> and it right. is kind of a, you know, you can picture bards or something. Yeah, that's true. The, hmm. And it it's actually very very similar to the ultimate result. It's just it was kind of weak, and so <laughs> what happened. And this just shows how critical Patrick McGowan was to every single aspect of this show. I mean, he wrote much of it, he directed it, even though he didn't put his name on the screen. While they were recording this with the orchestra, McGowan went in <laughs> and cornered Grainier and read him the riot act. <laughs> and he said, this has got to be much stronger. So the ultimate result is what we got, which will go on, uh, go out on at least a portion of it. You know, after McGowan said, you've really got to punch this up. You've really got to make it something more. And so the ultimate result was. There yeah. we go. <laughs> he definitely, he definitely uh, punched it up on that trip. Yeah, no, I think and, it worked. Uh, yeah, it, it 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 sounds good. And I've, uh, I, I mentioned it in my notes that uh, I I've only so far heard the theme once uh, hmm. because of the way that uh, the Amazon IMDb uh, <laughs> handles the closing court credits. That's I actually awesome. had to look them up on YouTube to, to see the full closing credits. But, uh, uh, I think it's something that will, uh, will grow on me. Uh, yeah. I, 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 I'm inclined, I'm inclined to like it just from what I've heard so far, but I couldn't hum it back to you. I usually <laughs> have to hear something a few times before right. I can you know, internalize it. Yeah. Uh, Sounds good, though. Be seeing you. 